Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyber Ethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, cryptology and cyber ops. This is going to be good. Just you wait. <laughs> Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and being accredited brand and audience-safe advertising sales solutions, media buying and organizational training for media publishers, reach out to Buoyancy Digital at buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R. Media on LinkedIn. Greetings there, Jethro. Good to see you, Fred. I'm excited for our conversation today. I'm like, <laughs> well, that's just your cybersecurity nerddom popping to the surface. Well, let's explain, Jethro, why you're so excited. So our guest for yes. this podcast episode is Brandon Karpf, who is a Navy cryptologist and cyber ops professional. Naval, or I guess Naval is proper, not Navy. Um, a proud New Jersey native, he spent his formative years in the mid-2000s finding trouble on and off the internet, question number one. After discovering the value of structure at the U.S. Naval Academy, he went on to serve as an operations officer at the National Security Agency and U.S. Cyber Command in Fort Meade, Maryland, and as head of information warfare on USS Boxer in San Diego, California. Passionate about education, he's also worked as a curriculum developer for edX through MIT and Harvard, and as an adjunct professor of cyber science at the U.S. Naval Academy. So welcome, Brandon. Good to have you. Thanks, gents. Good to be here. And that bio, as I think they tend to say, means that you've been there and done that when it comes to cybersecurity. I've had my fun in the space. I'm a cyber nerd, just like anyone else. Um, <laughs> I definitely enjoy the technology. I enjoy the concepts and I just enjoy learning about what there is to offer in the space. We will have a hard time squeezing everything into the course of this episode, but I think it might be fun for listeners to get a little bit of your bio. Um, I love the phrase trouble on and off the internet because <laughs> we're always debating the, the boundary between real life and electronic life. So why don't you start there and take us through? Sure, there's a common trope in uh, information technology and cybersecurity space uh, where professionals in the area have always gotten their start tinkering and hacking various systems from a young age. I got my start though with uh, more untraditional tinkering and hacking where I was constantly taking apart fireworks and explosives and stuff like that and uh, putting together my own systems of explosives uh, and from a young age. And one of my parents' favorite stories is 
coming home and seeing me in the lawn with a fire extinguisher and a gigantic ball of flame coming out of the middle of our lawn. And, and it's actually pretty common. People in this space kind of get their start taking things apart, breaking stuff down, just being naturally curious, trying to figure out how stuff works. That was more kind of the trouble I would get in off the internet. Uh, the trouble I'd get in on the internet was uh, in kind of the later days of the internet relay chats, those IRC chats and people trying to do various doxing stuff. And I'm not, I'm not going to incriminate myself in the mid 2000s operations, but if anyone's familiar with the history there of uh, some of the stuff happening with anonymous and in those days, I, I kind of found myself in those chat rooms as a kid and kind of really got interested in cybersecurity and cyber operations from that perspective. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, let me ask you a question about that, because often we, especially as parents, try to get our kids to not be involved in those things, but you've actually made a career out of being involved in those chat rooms. And so where where do you draw the line? And especially in teaching our kids about this stuff, there are some benefits to knowing things about it, but there's also a lot of bad stuff you can get involved in. Yeah, most definitely. It's a two-sided coin. There's good stuff and there's bad stuff, just like in cyber operations, there's cybersecurity, and then there's offensive cyber or hacking, which can be done by good people. It can be done by nefarious criminals. I would say in my history, in my background, just having a good foundation in ethics, um, not the term that I would have used as a kid, uh, but my parents instilled a critical foundation in the ideas of character and the ideas of respect and the ideas of doing things for the good of your fellow uh, humans and not for the ill of fellow humans. So I think those foundations helped me evolve through that space towards something of value and something that was contributing to society as opposed to breaking society down. Now, that being said, it could have easily gone the other way, and plenty of people do. You look at someone like Kevin Mitnick, who is one of the most famous hackers who started off as a black hat and is now one of the most famous and successful white hats helping secure federal and corporate systems around the world. The lines are very close in that space, in the space that we live in. And that's why you know, we call this a gray zone conflict where there's some important things to do, some ethical things, but there's also a lot of nefarious stuff in that space as well. When you look, Brendan, at the Venn diagram of good hackers and bad hackers, there's a big middle area there of overlap. And it's interesting, actually, that you reference Mitnick because I've been tinkering with computers for a long time, taking them apart, yada, yada. So I know exactly what you're talking about. But Mitnick is someone who is roughly the same age as I am, maybe a little bit younger. So I've really followed his career over the course of my life. And he actually started out as a phone freaker, building little blue boxes to get the AT&T dial tone so he could make international calls and then took off from there. Here's a question, though, that I think ties in a little bit to what Jethro asked. And we talk a lot about ethics and cyber ethics and, and the role of parent conversations and values in the outcome of kids with all of this stuff. I'm curious, though, to, to get your thoughts on how much your parents knew about the IRC chat. They're obviously talking to you over the course of your childhood, which is where the values come from. But were they aware of some of the practical aspects of that when you were going through that? Absolutely not. They were not aware, involved, and even if they were or tried to be, I could have gotten around whatever parental controls they tried to put on the internet. 
I used to get in trouble and they would do stuff like take away my computer mouse and I would feign disappointment and uh, frustration. And then uh, I could navigate perfectly fine with just the keyboard that was attached to the old PC. And so I, I would say my parents did not know. And it, this was a point where technology wasn't so fundamental to everything we did. It wasn't so fundamental to everyone's profession like it is now. And so I could probably have gotten away with a lot more back then than I could have today, uh, where everyone's engaged online, everyone's working online, everyone uses these systems daily and understands now much more than we did then the risks inherent in all of that work, especially as we're connecting our home systems to our work systems, to our school systems. I would say now it's much more important that everyone's aware of those risks uh, and engaged in that process. Yeah, well, let's talk about some of those risks. I mean, you're dealing with things at a national level, and I definitely want to talk about those in a minute, but what are some of the risks that are facing individuals and a suggestion or two of how we could fix that before we get into the big picture stuff? Sure. And this is something I can talk about all day long. And you're right to point out the the problems I'm looking at in the Navy as part of the government, big, big problems, nation state actors, adversaries with billion dollar budgets, let alone, you know, million or more uh, budgets. So the, the threats and the risks are huge. From the personal standpoint, though, I think the biggest threats, the biggest risks really come down to your personal data privacy, especially as we're talking about education and kids. Students and child's, children's data is even more valuable to some of these adversaries than an adult's data. I mean, you think about a child's social security number or their identity they might not find out that their identity has been stolen for a decade or more if it has been stolen. Uh, at that point, their credit can be totally ruined. So there's actually a, a huge market for children's information from that standpoint as well. So I, I would say that's probably the biggest risk I can think of when it comes to our personal systems at home. And now as we're connecting our home systems to work and education, the threat of ransomware and malware getting into that stuff and shutting down our ability to just get education to just get work done is huge. Brandon, uh, that point about the children's information, I think is super critical for parents to really hear. It's actually something that I didn't include in so Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. And now I'm realizing I need to go back and update that book specifically to talk about that risk, because I think we've had at least one other guest, Jethro, talk about that specific issue. You know, I think in practical terms, if parents can think consciously about sharing as little information about their children online until the children are old enough to start making their own decisions, that's a really important step for people to take. Yeah. And I think it bears repeating that Tony Anscombe from ESET recommended that parents freeze their children's credit scores and reports to ensure that nobody can take credit in their name. And that's something that I think we need to be saying that much more often uh, because both Fred and I were we're kind of like, wait, yeah, that's a good idea. Why haven't we thought of that before? <laughs> but that's I'm, that's that's a good uh, step to take. I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be one of my recommendations, which is I do that for myself. And so that's definitely something I'd want to do for my future children as well. I mean, I, I pay for credit monitoring for myself because I take that risk so seriously. That's definitely something I want to invest into my children's future as well. So let's move a little bit further down the career path. I mean, the Naval Academy is a real honor. 
to attend that. And is that where you really started to move into the information security aspect of things? I mean, what brought all those pieces together for you? Yeah, 100%. So I, I actually went there intending to be an English major. I'd fallen in love with literature in high school, um, had some really impactful teachers at, at that time, and was totally on board with being an English major at the Naval Academy, which is... Which I didn't uh, know you could do, to be honest. <laughs> exactly. It's not, it's not the typical path. It was, it was the week, uh, my freshman year is the week that you have to pick majors, I think in March. And one of my uh, upperclassmen was flying a drone through the hallways of the dorm. And I'd never really seen one of those quadcopter drones before. And so I kind of stuck my head out and said, yeah, that's really cool. He said, yeah, this is actually my major. This is my capstone project for my senior year. And I said, that's awesome. What's that major? And it turned out to be uh, control systems engineering, which they now call it robotics and controls at the Naval Academy. So I changed my number one spot from English to systems engineering. And the rest is history. I, I focused on cyber physical systems, um, specifically uh, sensor networks, which are typically found in industrial controls. SCADA systems is, is the, the term of art for those. And uh, this was right after Stuxnet was uh, released into the wild and broken down. And I pulled that apart. And my research project at the academy was looking into how to build a resilient system that could resist the effects of a Stuxnet-like attack. And for, for our listeners, Brandon, if you don't mind, just like a, a three-sentence summary of what Stuxnet was? because yes, I have no dirty knowledge of Stuxnet uh, from any of my experiences in the military. So Stuxnet, this is all in the open source realm right now, is a piece of malware that was implanted in Iranian nuclear centrifuge sites that were trying to purify uranium to, to use in uh, nuclear weapons. And the, the malware itself, what it did was it manipulated the control system so that the, the, the actual person, the operator looking at a screen thought that everything was working fine, but actually in the centrifuge, it was spinning them apart to the point that they were actually breaking apart. And it was a manipulation of the control data uh, between the sensor and the actual user that was an incredibly effective attack and set them back years. And, and, and that's a, that is actually a fantastic summary of a super complex thing. But I think it leads us kind of into the, the asymmetric warfare part of the discussion in the sense that you're talking about that now being open source. And there's real concern that some of these same techniques could be used to attack other aspects of our infrastructure, whether it's the grid. I mean, when the weather's not doing it, you worry about hackers, you know, taking things down. And these these resources seem to be filtering down to smaller and smaller groups so that you don't necessarily have to be a nation state with billions of dollars to deploy something like this. Yeah, and you, and you definitely don't to the point where these online forums and the marketplace for malware and what we call zero days is a massive black market selling in these capabilities. And there's also a growing market around techniques like ransomware in the space where there are service providers and there are people that you can call. They have cut effectively what is their version of a customer service line that will manage the ransomware infrastructure, the command and control infrastructure. There's an entire market being created in the shadows around this, which is going to affect everyone's life if it hasn't already. Yeah. So I'm interested in 
the and we certainly aren't going to ask you to reveal anything that you shouldn't be talking about. So everything here should be common knowledge if anybody's paying attention. But what are some of the the things that we are facing right now? The the attacks on our system. For example, I have heard that there are entire teams of hackers in Russia that are just constantly bombarding corporate systems, trying to access financial data and corporate data so that they can then, you know, sell that to competitors or whatever the case is. Is, is that stuff a uh, work of fiction or is that kind of stuff actually happening? It's, it's a total reality um, that at this point in our world, in our totally digitized economy and digitized global economy, that cyber war is a very hot war. Uh, it is happening every day. We're not talking dozens of attacks. We're not talking hundreds or th- we're talking millions and potentially hundreds of millions of attempted intrusions every single day. You have these facilities with hundreds of people, operators on keyboard attempting to break into systems around the world. And a lot of this is driven by cyber crime, not necessarily state on state espionage, but really just looking for ways of getting access to financial records, financial systems, uh, personal information to steal money, um, to break into systems and use that to generate revenue for companies. Um, Whether that's a criminal organization, organized crime, some nation states, uh, particularly North Korea, use this to fund their state, actually. Uh, They get the vast majority of their funds through cybercrime and the stealing of uh, various people's property. Uh, That, I have to say, I had no clue about. That's really an interesting approach to uh, national governance. Yeah, especially with them, you got to think they're under so many sanctions from every nation around the world that really the only way they can raise money uh, for their own state operations is through crime. And cybercrime is the fastest, cheapest way of raising an incredible amount of revenue. We're talking in the billions of dollars. So when it comes to that scale, why isn't it happening? Why aren't these intrusions happening more often? And why are we not aware of more things happening? I mean, I feel like I should be under constant threat of these things happening, thinking about it with so many attacks happening each day. Well, I would say they they are. Before we we jumped on the line, I, I looked up the statistics for 2020 just looking at schools and universities at every level, in 2020 alone, there was 1,681 ransomware incidences just in the United States in 2020. So that's over 1,600 events just for schools. Um, I would say, yeah, I, I'm working on some side projects with a buddy of mine from grad school, and we just spun up a web server two days ago. Uh, there's already been over 100 attempted intrusions on that web server in just two days. This stuff is happening constantly. I do a lot of stuff on my own home network, and every single day I see uh, attempted penetrations of my own home network that are just random. It's not necessarily that anyone's targeting me. It's just that people are trolling the internet, looking for open systems and seeing what they can find. It's really looking for the lowest fruit available. Whatever they can pull off the tree without having to work too hard, uh, these criminals are gonna do. And that's really gets into the idea of what we can do to best protect ourselves. 
So we've got, I think, an interesting conversation going here, Brandon, about different threat levels, right? Uh, or, or threat vectors may be the better way to put it, where we've got issues of defending ourselves individually, you know, in terms of doing things like credit reports and being aware of, you know, our password integrity and things like that. But then you've got the corporate layer and then the nation state beyond that. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on who's playing defense, right? I mean, at the corporate level, obviously we're aware that there are security firms out there. You know, Cisco is constantly trying to update its routers and so forth. And presumably at the government level, right? We're talking the Department of Defense, we're talking the NSA and so forth. How do these various layers, and we'll put aside the individuals for the moment, but how do the corporate and national forces coordinate in general terms? to try to protect this stuff, because it seems like that level of attack is almost overwhelming. Yeah, and, and this gets to some of the points that you've made in your work of cyber hygiene, right? And some of the work that both of you have done regarding cyber hygiene, because it's it's not enough that you just rely on the government or rely on these gigantic corporate organizations to defend these systems. If you are gonna be a user of digital systems, you have to take your security and your privacy in your own hands and have some responsibility towards that. Do things the right way for the good of the ecosystem itself. But as to your question about the coordination, I think that we're increasing in that space. We're, we're playing a little bit of catch up um, as a nation. We did not do a particularly great job in the last 20 years uh, building a system that could fully integrate and fully coordinate our responses. But now you see organizations like the Department of Homeland Security with their uh, CISA, their organization, which is focused on homeland defense, specifically of our critical infrastructure. Um, you've got FBI focused on homeland defense as well. Same thing with NSA. NSA is really just focused on government systems, uh, uh, specifically DOD systems. What the push is, the, the kind of direction we're going in, is those public and private partnerships. So government coordinating with private organizations to defend their systems. Because at the end of the day, government can't reach into those systems and defend them. They can't reach into private organization systems and do anything. So really it's on the private organizations, which goes down to the individual level of you and me and everyone who's working in this space of needing to implement our own security posture. And it doesn't take a computer science degree or an engineering degree to be able to do that. It just takes some basic best practices and understanding that there are legitimate risks and legitimate threats out there uh, that you can pretty much mitigate if, as long as you kind of pay attention to what's happening in the world and you actually care, uh, it's, it's not the hardest thing to do to increase your own security and privacy posture. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about increasing our own security posture and what are the things that we should be doing. And so I'm gonna, assume that like having strong passwords is a good idea, um, you know, keeping track of that stuff. But it seems that there's got to be more than just that, not reusing the same password over and over again. Yeah, that's the classic trope of strong passwords. And now they make it easy because they have these password managers that I, I use. I think that everybody should use. I've gotten my parents. And by the way, my parents are not technologists. I mean, I've gotten my parents, my sister, my brother-in-law, my whole family on those password manager programs and they all love them because they don't have to remember passwords. My dad used to keep his passwords in his phone under various contacts. Um, 
using the password manager is way better. So I would say, you know, from the individual level, that is number one best thing you can do is, is get a password manager, but also understanding your own use of the technology, yeah. what devices you have that are connected to the internet and the fact that you need to update all of those. That oftentimes those updates do get automatically pushed, but sometimes they don't. You know, in my house alone, and I, I try to keep a pretty low tech household, I don't have any of those Amazon Alexas or anything like that, but I have a TV that connects to the internet. I've, I have a receiver that is connected to the TV. All of those systems need to be updated. And all it takes is a quick Google search of the system and update to figure out whether the software is up to date or not. Same thing with my computer and my phone. The first thing I do as soon as those software updates come out is I update them. I don't sit on that or waste time. The other stuff is kind of higher level when we talk about organizational security, especially from like a, a school standpoint. I know a lot of your, your, your audience, a lot of your focus is on the educator side of things. Schools struggle because of resources, right? The hardest part here is resource constraints. My resources in the, in the military, we have a lot of resources, but we still struggle from that as well. So the best approach that we can take from a security standpoint is break it down to first principles and figure out the biggest bang for your buck. By first principles, I mean, you lay out what your actual goal is, what your mission is up front, and then you start doing a gap analysis. The model that I use, I, I call it ARCS. So I figure out what authorities I have and what authorities I need to accomplish that kind of stuff, what resources I have and what resources I need, whether it's tabletop exercises, whether it's policies, whether it's standards, Next is knowledge, what knowledge I have and what knowledge is I need. And then last one, skills. So knowledge and skills, that's probably the best, best investment you can make, especially in a resource constrained environment, is that training and the education side of it. So getting onto those open source tools and open source resources. Uh, I mentioned Department of Homeland Security. They have a ton of free resources. The Center for Internet Security, ton of free resources for educators, um, all that kind of stuff you can do for free that just helps you learn what you need to do to mitigate various risks. This is really interesting stuff, Brandon. I appreciate the shout out, by the way, to the free resources, because if there's one thing we hear from educators, it's like more free resources, always good. I've had the opportunity to do some cybersecurity professional development for schools and have walked people through a risk assessment matrix, which is a little bit different from what you're talking about, which is more of an individualized, how do I accomplish this goal? But for the schools, I think the, the objective is to help them understand the various attack vectors that they're facing and the potential consequences that can flow from certain information, either no longer being made available to them through ransomware, or actually being yeah. exfiltrated from the school system and used in some way. You know, I think that you're absolutely right about the resource constraints for the schools and, and that makes the ransomware attack so threatening to schools because it's not clear that every school is necessarily up to speed in terms of their patches and then they don't have the resources to pay for the unencryption if they get locked down. And so any thoughts you have on that are, are welcome. And just to add to that, schools also have retention policies where you have to maintain certain records for a certain amount of years 
after somebody graduates. And sometimes those records are until the person dies and years after they die, other records you can destroy in a shorter amount of time. But that's a big deal if if a school has gone or a district has gone to a digital storage system for that, and then that gets attacked. I mean, that's a huge issue if it's not offline in a room full of boxes somewhere. Yeah. And so, I mean, what it comes down to is the fact that you cannot use information technology without having serious considerations for security. You can't have an IT department that is all, that is not also a cybersecurity department. They, those two things nowadays go hand in hand. You just can't afford not to uh, do that stuff. Resource constraints, 100%, right? Especially our school systems, they do not have enough money and resources to invest in that. However, there's some basic stuff that everyone can do to just get their house in order. Step one is just get your processes and your standards and your policies in place. I'm talking the, the paperwork, right? The backup management plan, you know, how it's actually going to run, the, the standard use policies of your systems, uh, the data classification policies, the identity and access management stuff. I, I mean, hard copy on paper, how all of those programs are going to run. There's somewhere between 30 and 40 of those different standard information security programs and controls that every organization, whether it's a massive, you know, Amazon down to your local uh, computer repair shop should have a number of those processes in place uh, to be just mature from a information technology standpoint. And that doesn't cost anything but, but a little bit of time, uh, elbow grease. And yeah. there's open source policies out there, open source standards. Uh, GitLab comes to mind where they have a ton of these that you can just go and download them and tailor them to your own needs. That is basic. Just get your operating procedures in place. And that'll kind of inform the rest of it. Now, that'll inform the gap analysis that I kind of talked to earlier of what knowledge and skills do I have and what do I need to go and get? Because if I'm going to invest anything, I'm not going to buy the brand new $10,000 system that so-and-so company just put out there. Instead, I would much rather send 10 of my people to a $1,000 course to get the skills that they need to lock down the system we currently have. That's going to come back to you in, in, in troves in terms of the success that you can meet in the space. That's that's really, really useful, Brandon. And we'll we'll definitely put, uh, as you said, GitLab, right? Yeah, Git, yeah, GitLab. And I've got some other stuff. I was looking at some, some open source tools and open source trainings. And the Center for, in, uh, for Internet Security has a ton of open source free resources specifically for schools uh, that I think I, I kind of dug through them in preparation for today. And they have some really awesome resources. Well, that's fantastic. We'll throw that stuff into the show notes, which will be a huge help to the schools out there. It's interesting to hear you focusing on procedures and having your house in order in terms of how you handle different uh, issues within the schools. I was on a school board for 10 years and it was a constant challenge to have up-to-date procedures that were actually followed by people. And of course, Jethro has frontline experience implementing those. But let me let me pull us back to the national level just a little bit because it is relevant, um, I think, to this issue of updating and patching, which is really what you're getting at, which is that if you have a, a webcam in your baby's bedroom and there's a firmware update, for security, you should make sure that you install that. But one of 
Right. But one of the issues that that you run into is that you're relying right on the security of the supply chain for the software update. And of course, I, I this will come as no shock to you. I'm bringing us around to the solar winds debacle. And to the extent that you can comment on that, I think that's a useful lesson for people to realize that wholly apart from the fact that Windows 10 will periodically trash my computer when I do updates, that, <laughs> that there are some legitimate security risks that you need to pay attention to when you're doing this. Most definitely. You're hitting a crucial understanding about this space, which is that there's always going to be someone that can invest more money into breaking systems than you can invest into defending it. At the end of the day, the defender has to be right 100% of the time, and the attacker just has to get right once. Um, it um, is inherently an asymmetric space, so it's not easy. It is hard. It's not a perfectly solvable uh, problem. I mean, there, there's no panacea here that is going to be a perfect solution. The supply chain management part is a legitimate consideration. And if there's a nation state that wants to get into your system, they're going to do it if you're specifically being targeted. You know, really at the end of the day, it's figuring out kind of what you were saying, doing that risk analysis, breaking down the various threats and figuring out which ones you can actually justify investing in, um, mitigating or lessening or resolving or transferring those risks as well, right? And so supply chain risks, uh, real issue, that's something that Larger organizations need to invest time in actually looking at their supply chains. The government's doing it now with all of their supply chain management. Corporations need to do it. Larger school systems definitely need to do that as well. The individual can do it too, though. I mean, I just bought a new webcam and I could have bought, I could have purchased the $20 one off Amazon that was made in China and is stolen technology from Logitech. But instead, I bought the $80 one from Logitech because it's not cheap and made in a lab somewhere in China. Now, not everyone has the ability to buy the $80 one over the $20 one. So that's a risk that you might have to accept. Uh, but it's understanding that you're accepting that risk when you do that. That's important. Well, that's a really fascinating point, Brandon, because I think what you're getting back to is this idea of hygiene and our own contributions to the security ecosystem, if you will, that when you're making the choice, and I'm talking to you through a C20 Logitech camera as we speak, you're making a choice to presumably not fuel some of the issues that we face both as consumers and as a nation state vis-a-vis -a, -vis a country like China. Yeah, 100%. We all have a level of responsibility in this space because we're all users of it. We all benefit from use of these technologies. Therefore, we all have responsibility towards ensuring that we are doing things in a safe way, in a secure way, in a hygienic way. That's just the reality of it. It's a collective action problem, which is challenging to solve. But at the end of the day, the more that people realize that their systems that are connected can be a threat vector, right? If we are using the same home computer to have our, you know, our son take a class that I'm using to connect to my corporate office, well, those are legitimate threat vectors. Therefore, I owe it to the school, I owe it to my company, but I also owe it to my child's education, and I owe it to my income to lock those systems down and to do whatever I can to be secure and be safe. 
Yeah, man, I've just got so many questions floating around in my head. I think the way that I want to go next is you've talked about these things that that we can do. You talked about how real the threat is. And this is the kind of thing that until it happens to us, we don't really think that we are part of that solution, that we're part of taking responsibility for it. And so how do we communicate that strongly enough without scaring people to death that they need to take this kind of stuff seriously? Yeah, the people like me who are like, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Probably more people uh, run away from us than look us in the eye and say, I agree, what can I do to help? Unfortunately, I people keep using the analogy, and they've been doing this for a decade or more now, of they're waiting for the cyber Pearl Harbor to happen. The problem is the cyber Pearl Harbor happens every single day. It's just people aren't calling it the cyber Pearl Harbor. I mean, you, you look at the solar winds event, which now the more we're digging into it, the more we realize it's not, it wasn't just solar winds. It was a lot more than that. I would say that's a Pearl Harbor level event, not loss of life, but definitely loss of serious value and national security and uh, information security and information privacy. So how do we get people to listen? Oh man, I don't think I have a good answer to that. Other than evangelists like us need to keep having these conversations and also making it approachable. The challenge is, especially in this space, we use boundary defining language. We put cyber in front of everything and people say, oh, the cyber guys got it. Uh, the computer science dude or the IT guys, they, they'll handle it. When the reality is we, we don't. <laughs> We're trying, but we need everybody. Um, so I think it's really on us inside the community to make it more approachable to make people realize that the principles of cybersecurity are no different than the principles of security. If you're gonna lock down a school, and I know a lot of schools are investing in stuff like, like physical security right now, especially with a lot of the recent events in our country. Well, those principles meet the same needs in cybersecurity that they do in physical security. It's the same thing. Uh, it's just applying those principles in a digital space as opposed to a physical space. Cyber security really isn't that hard. You don't need to know how to code to do it. You don't need to understand the inner workings of the internet uh, beyond the fact that when you type in something into a web browser, you get the web page that you want. Maybe, not always, but sometimes <laughs> sometimes you don't, but usually you get the web page that you want. Um, but it's understanding that this stuff has very fundamental basic principles that anyone can understand. And my goal is that make this as approachable as possible to the point that the school custodian could lock down the school's information technology system, not to mention the IT professional staff. That's that's just a really brilliant way to summarize all of this. It reminds me of the old saying that um, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. And I think a lot of people think of security and particularly to not to make it technical, but cybersecurity as being like the weather, right? It's just one of these things that's out there and somebody else will deal with it. And I think you're making a brilliant, honestly, podcast pivoting point for us that this is a broad communal responsibility that we all face. You lock your door when you leave at the in every morning, right? You put your seatbelt on when you get in the car, you put your helmet on when you go on a bike ride, right? Same thing. You got to put your, you got to lock your doors in cyberspace too. You got to put on your helmet. You got to put on your seatbelt before you get in the car or before you get on the bike. That's fundamental to this. You, you have to. 
um, in order to be a responsible member of society, a responsible member of our culture. Well, you know, one, one last thing that is really fascinating to me is as a school principal, I recognize that we were getting threats, not just from without our system, but also from within and that students were finding ways to circumvent the security practices that we put in place. And one of which was uh, installing VPNs on their phones to get around the security filters that we had for our network. The challenge is, is very real that you're not just trying to protect yourself from what's happening outside, but even in corporations, employees who install software on their computers that could be potentially hazardous and other things like that, those things exist. And I think what you're saying about the need to educate and help people understand that they're part of the solution as well is, is really important for sure. Yeah, you, you bring up an interesting point about the insider threats as well, which we haven't really talked about, but insider threats are totally real. Now, I think the interesting part about the school environment, and I was one of those kids too. I definitely had VPNs and I set up my own proxies and I would route my stuff outside of the school system uh, to get around the content. I mean, that's definitely something I did in high school and in college. Um, the the interesting fact about that, in, which is probably unique to the school environment as opposed to like the corporation environment, is what is that kid trying to actually do? What's driving them to do that? Now, it could be they're just genuinely want to hack into the school system to get a cyber day, right, as opposed to a snow day or something like that. Yeah, they could genuinely be a sadistic kid, or they might just be trying to find an outlet for some creative energy, in which case bring that kid in, right? Use that, you know, have the opportunity to have apprenticeships or to have a, a hacking team or something like that and actually direct that energy towards something productive and useful um, because that's something that I would have loved to have as a kid, as a student. I would have loved to have a capture the flag, cyber capture the flag team in high school. And I could put that energy in that direction as opposed to, I didn't know any better. I was just seeing what I could get away with because I was curious about it. That's what makes Mitnick, who you referenced at the beginning of this episode, such an instructive case because obviously he kind of veered off the legal path. I mean, I've read his books. He doesn't agree with that, but the justice system did. But my wife teaches at the Fashion Institute of Technology, and one of the things they've done is they've hired Mitnick's firm to provide cyber safety training. For instance, uh, to not download malware, to avoid phishing attacks, things like that. And it's really interesting to sit with her and watch how he's taking that skill set he has and trying to turn it in the other direction. Yeah, and again, it gets back to the beginning of our conversation, which is there's two sides of this coin. And at the end of the day, the principles are the same, whether you're using them for good or using them for ill. I would say what you're hitting is the awareness part of it, the training part of it, uh, the education. And again, I mean, this is everyone's responsibility. I think that our society is going in that direction anyway. I, I know all the big publications have cyber desks now. New York Times has a really good one, Washington Post. Um, there's dedicated media providers like the CyberWire, which I strongly encourage everyone to sign up for because they make it super approachable and understandable. And they cover everything from nation state level events down to the local uh, school district that got hit with some event 
Uh, they talk about privacy of various technologies. I mean, that's a really good resource that I would strongly encourage all of your listeners to use as well. Um, but it's the information's out there. It's just whether or not we decide to start consuming it. Yeah, that, that's a good point too. And there is a uh, program through the Air Force Association that is called Cyber Patriot that I have run in my school. And that's a, a good way to teach kids the ethics early on, especially if you have some kids that are interested in that and are doing some things, then that would be a good a good place to turn them for some help and some good guidance to get you know, on the right side of things. And ethics is a big part of that in that operation as well. Brandon, this has been just a great conversation. I mean, I could talk for another hour at least about this, but thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being part of the Cybertraps podcast today. We appreciate it. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. I, we could have definitely gone in a million other directions. We could have talked about Navy cyber operations. We could have talked about you know uh, other type of work that I've been in also, but I, I, I've enjoyed the opportunity. Thanks for having me on. Well, Brandon, I don't think that this will be your last visit as your time allows. So hopefully we'll have some of those conversations. <laughs> yeah, I, I, ho I hope so. We want to talk about other yeah. stuff too. That's great. Appreciate it. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity at all levels of our society, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you must have loved what you heard just like we did. If so, please leave us a five-star rating and review, and we appreciate having you here with us today and look forward to having you for our next show on Monday. 